Before I kick off the show, I wanted to share some exciting news about my new website at joshstamper.com, which is officially launched. The site has the Aspire podcast, blog posts, and a whole host of resources for educational leaders. Make sure you sign up for the Aspire newsletter to stay up to date on the latest giveaways, announcements, ideas, and exclusive content by going to joshstamper.com and signing up. I hope you enjoy this week's interview with a fantastic educational leader. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. I am honored to have Frank DeAngelis on the podcast this week. Frank is the retired principal of Columbine High School, serving as an educator for the Jeffco School District in Littleton, Colorado since 1979. As a Colorado native, Frank retired from his position as principal of Columbine High School after 35 years of service. After the tragic shooting on April 20th, 1999, Frank mourned with the Columbine community. He vowed to never forget those who were murdered, those who were injured, and all who were impacted by the tragedy. He dedicated his life and career to helping his students recover. He committed to staying on as a principal to help the students in the community heal. Frank now is a security and educational consultant speaker, and author of the new book, They Call Me Mr. D. Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Frank, as you know, the show is centered on leadership development, and I would love to hear your personal leadership journey and how you went from a social studies teacher and coach to the principal at Columbine High School. Well, it was a a long journey. I started out in 1979, and I started out as, as you stated, a social studies teacher and football and baseball coach. And never really had any inspirations to be administrator. And it was interesting when some administrators asked me if I'd be interested or thought about it. You know, all my friends and co-teachers said, why would you want to become one of them, you know, and uh, or why did you want to leave? And it was a tough decision for me because the thing that I enjoyed most about teaching was the fact that I got to be with the students. And I was afraid once that I became an administrator, that I would lose those opportunities, and I didn't want that. But a dear friend of mine, uh, Susan Peters, who I taught with, said, Frank, your position is changing, but you don't have to change as a leader. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that influenced me. So I got my administrative certification, and I ended up starting out as an assistant principal. Prior to that, uh, I was a dean of students for a couple of years, and then I did get my administrative license, and then within two years, I was fortunate enough that the principal's job opened up, and there was a couple of assistant principals who had more seniority than I, and I'm really into loyalty, and I said, I will support you if you decide to seek the principal's position, but they said, no, we really don't. We'll support you, so I did, and it was interesting because when I applied, there was district leadership that had a couple of concerns. Number one, because I had spent my entire career at Columbine, and they were concerned that many of the people that I would have to supervise were people that supervised me or were my friends. And then they were also concerned because I only had two years as an assistant principal. It really worked out well because the staff really went to the committee and said, this is the person we want, and we trust Frank. You know, he's proven himself, and this is who we want. So I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. And so in your journey, was there a leader who you knew or worked with that you really admired? And if so, what qualities inspired you? I was fortunate. You know, Columbine High School opened its doors back in 1973, and 
I was only the fifth principal when I took over in 1996. And I learned from every one uh, of the principals. And I was fortunate that the one who opened the school, Jerry Differt, was uh, a mentor for me, even though he was not the principal, but he worked for the state and he gave me some advice. And then two of the principals had hired me, uh, Terry Connolly and Warren Hanks. I got an opportunity to work for both of them. And each of them had their unique styles. And then probably the person who mentored me the most and the one who influenced me to get into education was Ron Mitchell. He was a principal. He became principal in 1989. And I worked for him as a teacher and a coach, but then I also worked for him as dean of students and then assistant principal. And I just admired what he did. And so he ended up being my boss once he left Columbine High School. And so he continued to be a mentor. So I took different styles from everyone. And I think that's the important thing that I think in leadership, what you have to do is you can't be black and white. There has to be some gray. Mm -hmm. And each situation is going to warrant you know, the type of leader you're going to be and the decisions you need, need to make. And, you know, the one thing that I think the if my strength as a leader was really developing relationships, whether it be with the staff or students, and it's, it's that understanding. And the compliment that I think said it all when I retired and the one that meant so much to me when I retired after 18 years as principal, the staff said, Frank, you never became one of them. You were always one of us. <laughs> and that was probably the best compliment I could have ever received because I never forgot what it was like to be a teacher. So what was one of the biggest misconceptions as you moved from a teacher to an administrator? I think the biggest misconception was you don't know until you're sitting behind that desk having, having to make the decisions, you know, as a teacher I was dealing with 150 students and within my department. But as a principal, even as an assistant principal, and my mentor, Ron Mitchell, said, Frank, it doesn't matter if you were an assistant principal for two years or 20 years. Until you sit behind that desk and you need to make those decisions, you don't understand what it's like. And I think that was the biggest thing that I saw as, a, you know, as an assistant principal. I was the activities director. And you know, I did, I did some evaluations of teachers and I dealt with the club sponsors, but as principal, you're overseeing all the departments, you're overseeing the classified staff, you're over, and so you have to make those decisions, and so it's just broadens. But, you know, the one thing that I learned, and I believe very strongly in this, and I think I learned it from my coaching, is you just surround yourself with good people, and that was one of the most important things, and so many times I hear leaders saying, yes, I delegate, but they micromanage. And I felt that you can't micromanage because I, I really believe that if you tell someone, I believe in you, I want you to head up this program, I'm going to be here if you need any help, but I trust you. And that's how you develop that leadership capacity. So Frank, as a leader, what were some areas that you wanted to change in education as an administrator? One of the things that not so much when I started, but towards the end of my career is all the testing. I know in the state of Colorado, when we had the standardized testing, and it really came about, I don't know, early 2000s. And one of my concerns is the testing that was taking place, we never got the results back until the new school year started. And I'm stating, how does this benefit us? <clears throat> and one of the things that, you know, I understand that you have a standard-based education and the various things, but I just felt, felt pretty strongly towards 
you know, mid-career as a principal or towards the end is we started taking away some of the creativity of our teachers. And, you know, and that worried me a little bit. And everybody was different. And, you know, that's one of the things that I felt needed to be looked at. And, and you know, one of the things that I would share with uh, legislators that were making decisions, a lot of times they were making decisions without getting input from the people that were on the lines every day. And, you know, I would encourage them, I, I would encourage them to come to our schools, encourage them to talk to the teachers because the decisions they're making can have an impact. And you really need to talk to the people that are, you know, working every day with the students, how that's going to have a positive or negative impact. And that's one of the things I really strive towards, towards the end of my career. So in your organization, how did you grow future leaders? Giving them the opportunity to experience different opportunities. And I put them, I, I, you know, as a principal, one of the things that I try to do is give them opportunities to be successful. I've, you know, I've talked to administrators who felt that the principal really was the center of everything and he or she was the only one that was the spokesperson or really did all the different things. And one of the things that I tried to do is put my assistant principals in front of people, you know, giving them opportunities that it wasn't I, it was we, we were a team. And I think that team concept is so important. And I know a lot of people that not a lot, but people are afraid to share their knowledge and ideas because they're afraid that that person can take their job. And to me, I think the thing, one of the things I'm most proud is I've had several of my assistant principals that ended up being principals. And I think that's important mentoring. And that's how you develop leadership capacity. And, and I think that's the most important thing is hopefully it's not necessarily what you say, but it's what you do. And I've seen so many times, you know, I've, I've seen people that get up there and boy, they have great philosophy and they have all the words to say, but then their actions don't meet their words. And I made sure if I was going to ask my assistant principals to do something, if I was going to ask my teachers to do something, I needed to make sure I'd be willing to do the same thing. What is the largest barrier to the success of leaders? I think right now it's a tough job. You know, I started out in 1996. And what I see now is there's so many things that impact uh, people getting into leadership or deciding not to. You know, I look at it from the standpoint that so many times what I worry about is it's become so political. And I was so fortunate to have the support of the school board, you know, members, the school board president, you know, my superintendent. And now I think what happens so many times is you hear you have outside forces coming in. You could have your parents coming in and they have a concern. And I'm not sure if there's the backing there that needs to be. And what I worry about with public education, it, it has become very political. And, you know, I, I make this statement all the time with everything I went through on that horrific day, April 20th. I don't know if I could have stayed, if it happened to, I'm not sure if I could have stayed 15 years later because of the political ramifications. And all you have to do is look at what happened at Parkland. Mm -hmm. And so times are different. And I think what I would hope is as administrators, they continue to get the backing of the, because it's a thankless job. And I wish they would get the backing of district administration and school boards. And I think that's the biggest challenge right now.
And so you just brought it up with the amount of school violence and tragedies that have occurred over the years. School safety has been at the forefront of school districts and administrators. And as I was reading your book, they call me Mr. D. There were several times I really had to put the book down because I got emotional over what occurred at the school. As an administrator myself, I continue to think about the students that are on my own campus. And so for those who haven't had the opportunity to read, they call me Mr. D. Will you just really give a quick synopsis of the book? The book really talks about my journey, why I ended up being the person I was. Uh, You know, my family was so important to me and they gave me the values and I talk about growing up, but then I talk about my career at Columbine and prior to, but then how my life changed as a result of everything that happened on April 20th. And I talk about where we were, you know, uh, on the safety component. The only girls we did to prior to Columbine were fire drills. And now you look at the drills that we're doing from the time kids enter elementary school all the way through college that we're doing drills, you know, lockouts, lockdown, things of that nature. So that was a major change. Also talk about, I know every time there's a school shooting, all of us as administrators saying, why could this happen at our school? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I state pretty emphatically in the book is if you would have told me a Columbine could have happened at Columbine 20 years ago, I would have said no. And that's the one thing, the one common denominator when I go to all these communities, they're saying, Frank, I can't believe it happened here. Because when you look at it from the outside looking in, Columbine was that school in which people wanted to be there. You know, we had a high graduation rate. We had uh, 85 or higher percentage going on to college a lot of parental support. And so I would have never expected that, but it was a lesson for me to learn. And, you know, one of the things that people worry about, as I said, this violence continues. But one of the things that I try to share when I do go out and present is how many have been stopped because of things we're doing differently? How many lives have been changed? And, you know, I go into a little bit of detail, just all the events of that day where we did have school resource officers that were outside, but they were being told to secure the perimeter. Well, until SWAT arrived, well, unfortunately, by the time SWAT got there, it was about 50 minutes later. Well, now that would never happen because a first officer is going to respond. And so there's been so many lessons learned. And then the end of the book, I mean, the latter part of the book, I really talk about hope. I think a lot of times in our minds, after these school shootings, people really believe that it's one thing that's going to stop. And the natural place to go is, you know tough for gun laws. And I actually had politicians say, Frank, I can guarantee you if we have tough for gun laws, there's never going to be another school shooting. And I have a tendency to disagree. I said, that's one piece to the puzzle. It, it, do we have loopholes in gun laws? Do we have gun laws that need to be tight as far as, you know, 30 round magazines? But that's not the only thing. What worries me is when I see communities, when I see school districts that are cutting funding for counseling, yeah. uh, for mental health, for social workers, that's another piece to the puzzle. Something that you have to deal with as administrators today that we have to deal with as parents or grandparents is the role social media is playing in our children's life. You know, back in 1999, social media was not a major part of our teenagers' lives. And I I truly believe it's not by accident that we're seeing an increase in teenage suicide as a result of the role of social media. And then the other thing I think is so important is letting parents know the important roles they play in their kid's life. And I saw this at the high school 
parents would come up and say, well, now they're older, they're high school, they're adolescents, and we need to back off. And I said, no, they need you more now than ever before. So when you take all of these components, these pieces, puzzles, you put them together, then we have a chance of you know, combating some of these acts of violence. And the part in the book that I loved that you touched on was the post-tragic care after trauma and, and the counseling component. What do you think our schools need to do with trauma and having trauma-informed practices? Well, I think every school district has to have it. And unfortunately, what ends up happening with so many of our counselors that do an excellent job, but they are trained in a wide range of things, you know, career counseling, things of that nature. But that trauma counseling, not necessarily there. And it's interesting what I saw and what I see happening around the country is when these events happen, whether it be an event like Columbine or a student ends up dying, taking his or her own life or a car accident. So many times outside sources come in, but the kids at the school want to talk to the people they know, their counselors. And so we need to make sure that we provide support for those counselors and for the administrators. Because, you know, one of the things, and I still believe it today, that there's a stigmatism attached to counseling. You know, I was told, as I stated in the book, that someone told me that counseling is a sign of weakness. And if you seek counseling, you better not tell anyone because they're going to deem you unfit for your duty. And luckily, I didn't listen, you know, and 20 years later, I'm still seeing my counselor, you know, when the Parkland happened and just within the past two months, there was a school shooting over at STEM Academy here in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, which is about uh, six miles from Columbine. I had to call my counselor to get me through it. And so I think what we need to do is tell people that there is help out there. You know, and one of the things that I'm working on with a lot of the teachers unions is the fact that after a a traumatic event happens, law enforcement, uh, firefighters have to go through some type of debriefing, you know, before they go back on duty. But what I see so many times in these communities is teachers go through it and we put them right back in the classroom. And it's not that they're not capable, but I would have liked to have known of my staff members after talking, someone can say, Frank, so-and-so may need some additional help. And, and that's one of the things that I'm hoping I can see happen to do, you know, not necessarily some debriefing, but checking in to see, you know, because the bottom line is when they get in front of those t- kids, they're responsible, you know, for the well-being of those kids. And if, they're not, if they don't take care of themselves, they're not going to be able to help others and teach. Another component that you had in the book was proactive measures for schools versus reacting to a tragedy. For our administrators, what are some proactive measures that they can do right away? Well, I think the most important thing is a a lot of it is taking the drills seriously. I mean, I know so many times as an administrator, your staff can tell pretty quickly whether or not you're buying in to what you're proposing. And I've been around when people, I've heard principals or administrators saying, well, I was told I have to do it, so we need to do this as opposed to saying, you know, this is important. And I know when we first started doing drills afterwards, uh, we would do lockdown drills and lockout drills and things of that nature. And we would walk by and there would be teachers continuing to teach and kids on their cell phones. And that's where we had to kind of have our, all of our administrators, I would invite police officers come in that we would debrief with the teacher saying, this is what we need to do. And it's, you know, I really believe that there are people out there 
teachers out there, even administrators who feel if we don't talk about it, it's not going to happen. And I think it's our responsibility as administrators. It's a key component. And I know a lot of times I get some uh, feedback from elementary people saying we don't want to traumatize our kids. Well, it's based upon age sensitive uh, materials. I mean, you tell a young kid, I have a granddaughter who's going to be entering school, but we'll have these discussions. You know, if a bad person comes in, you're going to play hide and seek things of this nature. Mm -hmm. And it's not to scare, it's to prepare. And I think that's the most important thing that our jobs as administrators have changed. And it's interesting, uh, within the last year, I'm going to various colleges where in meeting with uh, educator professors for education programs because they want to hear from me because they're training their teachers differently than you were trained and I was trained and that's a part of our society. So obviously the event in 1999 affected the community and your school greatly but specifically how did it change you as a leader? I'll tell you it, it changed me. I became a better leader and I really believe that my coaching background helped me because as a coach, you got to be able to motivate, you got to deal with the hand you were dealt. And I think those skills were called upon me. But I think the thing that was the most challenging for me was not only being able to provide the leadership where teachers go in and teach the curriculum, but dealing with the emotional aspect of it. Things that I share is we could all experience the same experience, but how we deal with it in the aftermath is different. You know, we had teachers and staff members who constantly wanted to debrief, constantly wanted to talk about it. And we had others say, Frank, the sooner I get back to doing what I was doing prior, that's going to help me heal. And then we had some people in between. And so one of the most challenging things for me as an, a leader was to you know, try to meet the needs of everyone and let everyone know we're all in different places and we could agree to disagree, but the thing we need to do to stay together. And one of the things that helped me deal with the students is I think so many times as administrators in all walks of life, CEOs, we find people who tell us what we want to hear. And I think this creates a false sense of security. And for example, so many times as leaders, we find those department members or those teachers are going to say, yeah, great idea, great idea. But you also need to reach out for some to some of those teachers saying, why will this not work? Give me some examples because there's nothing worse than a leader is when you get up in front and say, this is what we're going to do. And then a couple of weeks later saying, well, I thought about it. And so I think you need to be prepared. And one of the things that helped me as a principal is, when I walked down the hall, students would say, you know, we're Columbine, we're blue and silver, we're rebels, we're family. But what I didn't realize until I walked outside the doors and went and found some of those kids that were in the smoking pit, smoking cigarettes that were cutting classes or over at the skate park. I said, guys, you know, what are you people doing? And they said, do you even know who we are? And I unfortunately knew most of their names, but they said, we don't fit into your school. You know, there's staff, there's teachers, but they're more so students that could care less if we're ever there. And that broke my heart. And so that's when I realized that that inclusiveness, that welcoming environment is so important, not only for students, but for staff members. And that's one of the things that I really, really stress the importance of that, because I told teachers all the time and I told administrators all the time, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's the key part. I'm all into relationships. So Frank, there was a part in the book, and I think I read this line probably four or five times, it said, 
evil has devalued precious human lives and ripped away at peace. How are you in the spotlight able to bring peace and hope back to your community? Well, one of the things that I stress the importance of having that support system in place, and I was so fortunate to have my family and friends and in counseling, but the other important piece in my life, that's not for everyone, but my faith is important. And, you know, it helped me get through those tough times. And as I tell about my journey on that particular day, you know, the gunman comes towards me, very fortunate, you know, to be alive and then save these girls. But I was questioning my faith, but it was the priest who said, Frank, you, you know, you should have died that day, but God's got a plan. And so that really gave me the inspiration to continue. And, and there were tough times, but I, I had myself surrounded with so much support, and that's the most important thing. And the analogy that I use in the book is whenever you get on a plane and a flight attendant talks or gives you the information at the beginning, and they said if for some reason if a plane loses cabin pressure, before you help that child next to you, before you help that elderly person next to you, make sure you put the mask on yourself first because you got to help yourself. And that's the same thing going through this traumatic time. If I was going to continue to be the principal, I needed to make sure I took care of myself. And I think that was the most important thing that I learned, one of the lessons I learned. And then the other thing that was so difficult for me, I had so much anger and hatred built up towards the two killers. And when I returned to Columbine, I would take that anger into the school each and every day. And I've seen and not even to the magnitude of something like Columbine, but how many times do we make that anger and hatred affect us? And it was finally going back to my faith. Someone sent me something, a dear friend, he said, you could hate the sin, but not the sinners. And, and so basically what I had to do is let go of that hatred. I could never forget the act. I mean, saw 13 killed, 24 injured, and all these people impacted but I couldn't allow that hatred to be pent up because that was hurting my chances of being an effective leader. And so those were the lessons I learned. So now you have retired as a principal and you're a consultant, and I know that you've assisted multiple incidents. I think you even talked a little bit about it, um, but everywhere from Virginia Tech to Sandy Hook. So how have you been able to be a consultant after you know, living through a tragedy like that and now being a part of safety and emergency yeah. management? Well, it's interesting. Uh, right after the Columbine tragedy, I made a comment that I just joined a club in which no one wants to be a member. And it's not that I'm an expert, but when I end up calling a school, for example, when I called Ty Thompson from uh, Parkland, he picked up the phone. He said, when I saw Frank Dan's principal, it's not because Frank Dan's, it was my role. He said, I know when you say I know what you're feeling, you do. And just recently, it was in April, I was contacted by the National Association of Secondary School Principals to head up a network called the Principal Recovery Network. And I headed that up along with principals from 16 or 17 other communities that have school shootings. And so now, uh, you know, what we have in place, if a shooting should occur, we can help, we can reach out. And I think that's an important thing because back in the day when it happened at Columbine, we didn't have it. And so one of the things that I do, again, not being an expert, but when I state, here's what you need to do. For example, last year with, for Parkland graduation, for Santa Fe graduation, I said, this is what we need to do. Most recently with STEM Academy, 
and I'll say, this is what worked, this did not work, you know? And so I think that's where I could be, help people. And I made a promise, and I've stated this in the book, and it's not my quote, but you can't determine what happens to you, but you can determine how you could respond. I decided that night after realizing, you know, 13 people lost their lives, there's nothing I could do to bring them back, but I was going to continue to do everything in my power that they did not die in vain. And so what I want to do is reach out, and and I believe this with my heart and soul that I refuse to be helpless and hopeless. So I'm going to continue to do this until the day I die. Well, and I commend you for that. I know that you made a promise to stay for everyone affected from the shooting, and, and then you would retire, and, and you fulfilled that. So I want to kind of turn it to some of the things that you did on your campus afterwards. What was one initiative you implemented on your campus or maybe in the district that you were extremely proud of? Well, one of the things that was so important, I served on the committee. We did something called Safe to Tell, and Safe to Tell was a 24-7 anonymous tip line. And one of the things that's so important, I think, in sharing this information with students, if you hear something, say something, uh, see something, say something. But as a parent from Parkland said, not only do we need to see something, say something, hear something, say something, but we need to do something. And I think so many times uh, our kids are so bright. And if they are going to bully or if they're going to do something, they're normally not going to do it in front of adults. And so I think just making kids aware. And one of the things that was so important to me is when people would come up to me and say, Frank, what are you going to do? I said, what are we going to do? And I realized the importance of bringing us all together, not after an event. Again, it's being more proactive than reactive. So bringing all the parties together with, you know, with the parents, with the police, and we're all coming together for our most precious commodity, our kids. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of. So, Frank, for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? You know, one of the things that I would encourage, don't get into administration too early. You know, one of the things that really helped me is I taught from 1979 up through 1994. And so, and part of it is, and it's not that young people or new leaders aren't ready but I worry when they get into administration two or three years into their career, because in most cases they have to work, you know, for 30 years. And I think to be an administrator for 28 years of your career, it's difficult. And it's much more difficult now than when I got into it. And so I would encourage, you know, one of the things as a teacher, you have time. And I spent, you know, 20 years as an administrator, but I look at it that once you become a principal, and if it doesn't go as well as you like, many times it's difficult to go back into the classroom, so don't rush into it. But the other thing, too, is I think learn from your predecessors. I think a lot of times, and we opened up this conversation, is I had so many mentors. And the thing that I think is so important as an administrator is you can get overwhelmed by the bureaucracy. And the thing that I think the least favorite of my job as an administrator were all the meetings, all the paperwork, and but that's a part of it. But one of the things I tell people is don't lose sight of what got you into education, into education. That's usually the students. And I would try to block out a good hour, hour and a half a day to go spend time in the classes. And my administrator said, well, how can you do it? I said, you put it on your calendar. 
And in most cases, I would do that. You know, I, I was one of the high school prints, few high school prints. I loved cafeteria duty because, you know, and people would say, well, you're the principal. You don't want to do it. I said, I want to do it because I got to walk around to the tables to find out about kids. And I was in the hallways during passing periods because it breaks my heart when I have students tell me when I go speak, we don't even know who our principal is. And that bothers me. You know, that principle in finding out the names of people, just let them know you care. And I think it makes for a healthy career. And my mentor, Ron Mitchell, shared something with me that I think is relevant. He said, as an administrator, as a principal, you have basically three groups that are going to influence the longevity of your job. You have your students, you have your staff, and you have your parents. And he said, if you don't have the support, all three, he said, your time is limited. He said, if you have the support of only one, it's going to make it a tough road. He said, but if somehow you could have the support of the students, the parents and staff members, you're in for a long career, a good, successful career. And that's what happened with me. After everything that happened at Columbine, I think the thing that helped in me staying is the foundation I developed 20 years prior as a teacher, coach. And so some of the people, some of my worst critics were overwhelmed by all the support I had. And so I think that's important. So for those who do not hold a leadership position, what are some other ways our aspiring leaders can make an immediate impact? I think being involved in, there's so many committees involved, you know, at the high school level, you're looking at department managers at the elementary level, you're looking at team leaders. And I think just being involved in having input it, because you make, I mean, you make the decisions. As I stated earlier, we see politicians making decisions without ever talking to administrate or talking to the uh, educators. Well, it's the same thing. So many times, in order for you to be involved, I think administrators want those people to be there because so many times what ends up happening in schools and communities, it seems like it's the same people that serve on all the committees. And for me, I think it's important to seek, you know, input from everyone. And so you get everyone's perspective in setting up those committees. And then something else that I, and it just came upon me, one of the things I took a chance, because so many times, especially at the high school level, you see people that they assume, they don't understand what other people are doing. And for example, there would be English teachers that say, boy, we should make more money because we're grading all these papers and uh, let's look at the physical education teacher and all they're doing is rolling out balls or, you know, and math teachers say, well, we grade homework every night. Well, one of the things I decided to do is we, I decided to do peer observations and I did not allow any of the teachers to be able to observe people in their own department. Well, the purpose is they would pull out now, all of a sudden, an English teacher is going to a physical education class and say, oh, my gosh, what they're doing is phenomenal. They're having them write journal entries. They're doing this. The math teachers are saying, oh, they're teaching math because they're doing percentages of a heart rate. Well, now, all of a sudden, the English teachers go to a math class. And so all of a sudden, that perception is not necessarily reality. And we brought people together. And I think breaking those barriers, and it starts with the teachers. So in addition to speaking at the conference, you know, you've written your book and all of the proceeds to your book are going to multiple foundations. Can you just tell us real quick where the funds are going? Right. Uh, there's three foundations that are near and dear to my heart, and each has a distinction. 
The Columbine Memorial is the memorial that was built and opened in 2007. And so funds are going to maintain that for many, many generations after I'm gone. But then there was an academic foundation that was established in my name prior to me retiring called the Frank DeAngelis Academic Foundation that is benefiting, you know, the students at Columbine now, but also in the future. And then the third is the Frank DeAngelis Center for Community Safety. And it's, a, it's an elementary school that was closed down in 2010. And they decided to make it a training center for the SWAT team members. And there's been Navy SEALs that comes in. And so basically what that center is doing is training our law enforcement, our paramedics to deal in first responders to deal with situations. So those are things that I think come directly as a result of Columbine. So Frank, in closing, what is the most enjoyable aspect of leadership? Realizing that you can make a difference. And I opened up, you know, as a teacher, if you're an elementary teacher, you're working with 28 kids that you could make a difference with those kids. You know, in high school, teaching social studies, I had 150 kids. But as a principal, you could have an impact on 2,000 kids, you know, or 1,200 kids. You could have an impact on 150 staff members. And for it to come together, you know, the passion. We had a term at Columbine started my first year as principal we are columbine and we were family and i think just to sit back and look at that passion for columbine high school and i think it was that passion that allowed us to heal and as we look out 20 years later i think columbine does provide a guiding light for others that go through tough times you know and um, had a good fortune of doing some work with Gerda Wiseman Klein, who was a Holocaust survivor and still alive, but she came to speak to our kids six or nine months after the tragedy. And she said, you are gonna be guiding lights. You young people can turn you know, uh, darkness and into enlightenment and hatred into love. And, and I think that's what Columbine represents. And that's the thing I'm most proud when people say, no matter what we go through, we could, you provide hope for us. And I think that's the message that I would love to give. Never be helpless and hopeless. Well, Frank, how can our listeners connect with you either on social media or to reach out to you to hear you speak? Yeah. Basically, my hashtag is FrankDiane72. And th- that's my Twitter account. And then I'm on Facebook, of course. And then my uh, email is my name, frankdeangelis1 at yahoo.com. So if someone's interested in possibly having me come out and speak it would be there. And then my book has all that information also, again, with all the proceeds going to various foundations. And uh, I heard you speak a couple years ago, Frank, and you did a fantastic job. There was not a dry eye in the place. The information that you provided was extremely insightful. So it was an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. And keep up the great work and sharing the message. You know, they're all of our kids, our most precious commodities. So thank you for the opportunity.